It's the 200th numbered episode of Multiversal Q. Technically, this is 313, but I don't fucking understand how to count. Luke's bad with the math, y'all. It's the 200th episode that is numbered. Congratulations, Luke and Devin. This is Luke from the Ultimate Universe. Why does Luke from the Ultimate Universe sound exactly like Luke from the regular universe? You know, I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. It's just a weird mystery. Do you think that, like, alternate universe, or I guess... Your normal universe, Luke, would be, like, sounding the same? Or, well, like, super different? Like, do I need to speak with a accent for you? Yes, Luke. Italian. That's offensive, Luke. <laughs> Greek accent, Luke. <laughs> Yeah, that was not a good Italian accent. If you change your mind, take a chance on the first in line, on the unsteel free, take a chance on me. Is that offensive? I don't know. I don't actually know what you're trying to do. Is that still Italian? If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got no place to go. I was gonna say you're more trying to do a Russian. You're basically trying to sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to do a Russian accent, like the hit film Red Heat. I yeah, sorry, I don't really know. Yeah, and alternate universe Devin was not coming in on any of the song cues. There were no words written for <laughs> song Devin. Uh, no, normal universe or main universe Luke sent the notes over to everybody. I, no, I didn't. Wait, so you just had me randomly singing. I've taken over your podcast for like 20 something episodes. Yeah, but I think we've had some guests who have been on for more than that. Have we? No, I just wanted to make other Luke feel bad. Oh, okay. Mission accomplished. But yeah, Devin, Devin, other Luke. Uh, this is our 200th numbered episode, because remember how we just really delayed a bunch of our numbering of episodes to <laughs> try and do bigger things? Yes. Or like how... Uh, Black History Month, when we covered all of the Marvel Noir universe, was just counted as one episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, we have some special, we have a special guest interview portion that we'll probably put up pretty early in this episode. Uh, as we interview Mike Carey, writer of Ultimate Fantastic Four, Lucifer, and a lot of other things. Uh, other Luke, make sure to not forget to give him a good intro. You already know that we recorded this interview, you asshole.
Good times. Great times. Yeah, Devin, we have done 313 podcasts. And it is not counting all of the exiled ones. Oh, yeah. If we bring that in, I don't have a good count of how many of those episodes you weren't in. Because there was a handful. Yeah, I mean, there's a few solo arcs. Um, oh, true. When we split, when the group split up. And there was a few of the, uh, like, fifth week specials that I don't think you were in. Truth. Plus, there was all of the, uh, like, Assault on Camelot Eternal. But we have been doing podcasts together for a while. Very much so. And I just wanted to go and put in some clips of our old memories. Who the hell are you guys? Oh, I love to eat the farts. Aren't those great memories, Devin? Those are the only things that I have on the soundboard. I have not updated the soundboard. Those were great, especially since I only talked for one of them. Ha <laughs> 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 uh, But yeah, if you are joining us to listen to Mike Carey... We'll start that interview now so you don't have to deal with any more of our shenanigans. Joining us for our special interview segment for our 200th numbered episode of Multiverse OQ, we have on writer Mike Carey. Hey guys. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, I've had a, a pretty good start to the year. I'm working on a, a trilogy of novels and I'm just uh, into the final straight on the third uh, book in that trilogy and feeling feeling pretty good about it uh would that be the girl with all the gift series it's not no it's it's something completely oh. new um all three uh books are coming out in rapid succession uh april of this year then i think september and then february 2021 uh they're, they're called the books of coley or the rampart trilogy oh nice do you want to talk more about what that is sure. it sounds interesting yeah it's it's um so it's uh, it's similar to go with all the gift in that i'm uh i'm back in that sort of post-apocalyptic territory but these stories are set many centuries after our civilization has sort of come crashing to the ground uh the people in coley's time coley being the protagonist don't even remember what happened they have a lot of stories uh, about the unfinished war about climate breakdown um, they're kind of living with the consequences of that sort of um, that that catastrophe, and also the consequences of the various attempts to um, to contain it. You know, the scientific interventions that were meant to stop climate breakdown. So Coley's world is very different from ours. Um, uh, among other things, the trees, the the, the forests uh, in Coley's world are predatory, and it's very dangerous to uh, to go in there, especially when the sun is out. In in terms of tone and voice, it's kind of it's kind of me stealing um, from Mark Twain. There's something a little bit Huckleberry Finnish about Coley's narration. He's somebody who is is barely literate, wields language like a very blunt tool. So there's a kind of rudimentary poetry to the way that he speaks. Interesting. That sounds really cool. And so those are uh, coming out. Three books in the next about a year at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's because the uh, the first one just just came, just happened. I, I wrote it in about um, ten weeks, and my my editors at Orbit <laughs> said, "You know, do, do, should we should we put all three books on the schedule? Then do you think you're going to carry on working at this pace?" And 
I said I blithely said yes. I haven't qu- I haven't quite I haven't <laughs> quite managed to keep up that pace, but uh, but but they, they 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 definitely were stories that came out under pressure. If that makes any sense, um, you know, some stories you have to work at, and some stories happen more organically and more quickly. And these definitely fell into the uh, mm-hmm. the second category. Yeah, that is kind of fascinating. Like, does that? way of having to write in succession or in succession remind you a lot of writing um, comics no not really uh th- th- there's this one huge difference between writing novels and writing comics and that is um comics deadlines are inflexible they come at a particular time in the month and you you damn well hit that deadline because if you don't, then you're um, you're messing with your penciler, your inker, your colorist, your letterer. The whole team are kind of impacted by your inability to hit your deadline. Um, with novels, even when you say, "Yeah, sure, I'll I'll, I'll I'll get that to you by the end of June," um, if it's the end of July or the end of August, nobody really cares. Nobody cares enough to uh, to come after you anyway. Um, all all that means is that there's a different um, different publishing slot. It just moves down the year a little, um, but there is there is less hmm. sense of urgency and there's less sense of you know you being the first link in a long and complicated chain with other people waiting to do their work when you finish yours. That makes an incredible amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, so I just realized I didn't do a proper introduction because you have written a <laughs> massive amount of books. Uh, for Marvel, DC, also non-comics, because uh, you yep. wrote Lucifer, which the Fox TV show is loosely, loosely based yep. on. Yeah. Uh, and that was also part of, uh, and you also had your long run on Hellblazer, uh, the third longest run? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, but then you also did a large amount of writing for uh, the Ultimate Marvel Universe. You did the Ultimate Lectra series. Uh, you initially did the two-shot Ultimate Fantastic Four. Uh, and then that followed up with your Ultimate X4 uh, two-parter series. And then you uh, got a run on uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four as the headliner. And then... Uh, your X-Men Supernova's run was big. I know I got a specific question about that. And you uh, also did Ultimate Vision, which is one of those that was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to be as really good as it was. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did get to play in the Ultimate Universe a lot, which was very cool. So with you coming on to Ultimate Fantastic Four, because you came on, as I want to say, the fourth a big writer when you got your like full approach on that were there a lot of restrictions with what you were able to do with it or how how did that work out was it just like we need to keep this going because ultimatum is coming eventually or there, there were very very few limits indeed i mean i i i was basically um Ralph Macchio contacted me. He asked me if I wanted to write on the book. We'd already worked together on some other things. Um, he asked me how I interpreted the uh, the brief. And I said, well, um, I, I, I guess it's it's like taking all the, all the coolest bits of um, the Stanley Jack Kirby run and reinventing them for a modern audience. And he said, that will do. Um, I realize now that um, that's kind of not what Mark Miller was doing in the year immediately before I came on board. He was doing more 
you know, I, I think more radical, um, and you could argue more, uh, you know, um, more more sort of out there things with the book. Um, but that was that was definitely what I was doing for most of my run. I was like um, stealing classic stories um, from from the sixties, in some cases from the seventies, and just kind of like filing the serial numbers off and doing something a little bit different with them. Yeah, because, well, there's the Ellis run and then uh, Millar's run. And Millar, there just seemed to be sort of a kind of weird edge to what he had been writing in. It's like, oh, we're going to make everybody a bit darker and we're going to put in some zombies and some horror elements. And it, it didn't necessarily feel like a family drama as much in the way that I think a lot of your work did coming on. Hmm. Yes, I guess that's true. I guess I guess there was a darker edge to Mark, what Mark was doing. Um, it still, you know, it still felt like a Fantastic Four book, and that it still had the sort of cosmic sci-fi. Um, everything was viewed through that lens. Um, I, I wanted very much to kind of lean on um, the characters and relationships as I understood them. Um, and to put in a lot of a lot of cool um, character beats, I think maybe focusing more on Reed Sue, less on Johnny and Ben. Because mm-hmm. you uh, like started pushing more of the Reed Richards, who is still around now as the uh, maker, the sort of evil Reed Richards. Uh, starting with like the connection to Thanos and sort of evolving out of there. Like, is that something where you're sort of seeding the garden and not entirely sure what's going to uh, come up or like what you're going to be cultivating out of it? Well, again, that was um, that was sort of going back in a way to the um, the, the the roots of the character. You know, very very often in the uh, in the original Stan and Jack stories. Reed would do something. He'd he'd either he'd either sort of initiate an experiment, or he'd uh, he'd make contact with um, with this or that uh, character or group. He'd he'd make some reckless decision which rebounded on the team in some way. Um, you know, one one of the hallmarks of the character is just like this um, and endless kind of uh, inventiveness, endless originality, but also a willingness to push things uh, always to their to their to their final extreme. Um, and then the team as a whole deal with the consequences of that. I don't. I don't think my read was ever evil. I mean, obviously, there's a point at which he's um, he's kind of under the thrall of Thanos when he's building the cosmic cube. He's convinced himself that he's building a defense against Thanos, but actually, it's Thanos that seeded that idea in his mind, and it's Thanos who ultimately um, takes advantage of it. Um, and we see him, you know, under that influence, we see him become um, remote and uncommunicative. We see him being very cruel to Sue, um, but that's kind, of, but that's kind of not mm-hmm. him. It's kind of like a um, an infection, a psychic infection that he's got. It's Thanos working inside his mind, uh, and then he bounces back after that and does his best to make amends. And the very last image of my run is the moment when Sue forgives him and the two of them embrace for the first time. Since those, since that storyline. Hmm. Well, that is definitely something that we'll look out for as we're going to be covering more of it. Because this week we're dealing with the uh, Diablo right. storyline, and uh, then the uh, the Psycho Man 
and Silver Surfer storyline. The Silver Surfer story had my favorite single issue in, which is the issue when everybody is translocated to the other universe, to the Psychoman's universe, and they're all given new identities and um, they're living in this utopia. This is very, very simple Eden-like society. And Reed, Reed Richards is, is the kind of refusenik there who um, can't accept that kind of simple happiness because he's always got to question everything that he's seeing and everything that's happening to him. I, th- I thought that, uh, that I, I had fun with that story. Yeah, it is like a fascinating take on sort of the duality of utopia and what it means to have permanent happiness. And I, I do like that in a lot of your work, you are bringing in new ideas or interesting twists on the characters. Like I haven't read as many Psycho Man things because he's not as regularly used as a character, but what I was reading felt very fresh and new and <laughs> philosophical um... in a way philosophical in the sense that yeah I, i'm sort of noodling with noodling with serious issues it, it never gets uh I, I tried never to let it go get in the way of the storytelling um i guess one of the big thing for me with the ultimate universe is it did provide like readers like such a like a better jumping on point to like some of the more classic marvel characters and it's kind of disappeared here with uh, secret wars in the last four or five years um do you, do you miss it do you think that's something that, sh- that marvel should try to bring back to try to get newer readers into marvel comics i think it was a i think it was a really really um brave and visionary thing to do and i think it worked brilliantly i mean obviously mostly in um, um most obviously in ultimate spider-man but uh, you know they, they, they were they were dealing with this problem which is the um the sort of the complexity of inherited continuity and i think it was um it was it's inspired a lot of radical revision, revision, revisions of continuity since. I mean, I think it's become it's become easier now. It's become become more accepted now within the confines of the Marvel universe as we know it to do different things with characters, um, to reinvent situations, to radically shift the status quo. I think at the time when the Ultimate Universe started, the regular Marvel universe was seen to be quite static. And then, you know, the ultimate universe was a way of, of moving sideways and moving on. Um, if you look at something like um, Jonathan Hickman's amazing work on um, House of X and Powers of X, you see how, in a way, um, reinventing the entire universe has become something that you can do within mainstream continuity now. So I think the ultimate universe, in, in some ways, has made itself, because of, through its success, has made itself unnecessary, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. Well, sort of as the opposite of that question, because you were coming on with a lot of inherited continuity for the Ultimate Fantastic Four. If you had gotten to sort of set it up from the start, what do you think you might have done differently? Good question. I think I would have saved Doctor Doom and done more with Doctor Doom. I think Doom is kind of like... um, he's one of the big icons and i think you want to give him his full his full weight and i'm not not entirely convinced that they did maybe um i think what i what i what i should have done differently on my run i think i um i went in with all guns blazing on the god war arc and the god war arc was odd because in some ways it wasn't drawing on classic marvel at all um a lot of the um the inspiration for those characters came from uh, the fourth world books that Kirby did at DC in the 1970s. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think there was there was a ton of stuff compressed into those six issues. And I was still, in some ways, I was still learning the ropes as a writer of superhero stories. You know, my background was in horror and dark fantasy. Uh, most of the work I'd done up to that point, um, up, up to the point where I'd come on board at Marvel with the Ultimate Elector and Daredevil miniseries, most of what I'd done was not superhero work. Um, and so pacing was something I was figuring out as I went along. I think God War is way too compressed. I think there's there's too much too much story for the space, too many characters for the space, too much backstory that needs to be sort of unfolded on the fly. And I think it was uh, it was the wrong place to start. I know that wasn't quite what you were asking, but that's what I would have done differently. I think. No, that makes sense. So also one of the stories that I think gets discussed a lot is the, well, okay. Uh, I also write and there's some stories that it's like, oh, I definitely wish I could have done things better or had done uh, something different. Uh, You did the uh, two part issue in between, I believe the Malar run Mm. with the mad thinker. Do you think that that's something that you'd consider a successful story or it's one of those that I think stands out because of the Jai Lee art where it's a bit held back by it in a way? Like it's, it's, it's very static and designed in a way. It's hard to follow because a lot of characters in silhouette, I think that was because um, he was working under time pressure. I think it was a way of getting those pages done fast. And actually, I kind of hate the look of those two issues, although I'm a big fan of um, of Lee's work elsewhere. I just didn't think it worked for that story. Um, I stand by Rona Birchall. I think Rona Birchall is, a, is an interesting character, and I think she works okay as an antagonist for Reed. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think that story that story is a tough read, isn't it? It is like I, I do think she is much more successful in the Ultimate X Four right. uh, mini because there she gets a bit more development. Yep. And we get to see more of her. But, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think that uh, issues twenty is twenty and twenty one. Was that what it, what it was? I, I, I think it, um, it had some things going for it, but I think it, it, uh, it's not a success over taken overall. I think it's uh, it's too hard to see when when the, when the key beats come they come they they they're mostly visual rather than spelled out in dialogue and the visuals are murky so the, 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 there's there's meant to be a climax where um or a climactic turning point where Ro- Rona has envis- envisaged every single um action and reaction that the FF have taken you know she's she's covered herself because she's a genius she works with probability um she foresees every eventuality and she takes um precautions the the thing that that defeats her is that the the, the helicopter which is stalled, stalled on top of the uh the roof of the Baxter building from mm-hmm. the start of the story chooses that moment to fall off the roof um and it topples the platform onto which she's loading um the FF um, to, to, to be delivered to their to their buyer, uh, and then uh, Reed takes advantage of that and frees the others, and so on, and and, uh, and she loses. So she loses because of chance, not because um, of a a failure in her planning. And Reed takes that on board uh, and decides that next time he's going to have to be um, 
he's going to have to be better than her at what she does. Um, but it kind of it kind of goes goes that that beat goes awol because you can't see what's happening in the art. Yeah, comparatively, there's also the Ultimate Fantastic Four Annual Number Two with Stuart Eminen and Fraser Irving, which was the first one where it's like, oh, I'm really excited for you taking over the book yeah. because that's when you introduce the the think tank again, who never really got like a good shake and you get the uh mole man origin story in that as well yeah i had crazy fun with that story um both with um malekovich and with the uh the other kids in the think tank i i wish i'd done more with the rest of the think tank actually the two times i used them really were in that story and then again in the at the very end of my run in the salem seven story uh and there were characters i could have done a lot more with i think strange josie uh, was a character mm-hmm. who could have uh, who had had more legs really uh, could have been could have been uh, could have been exploited more uh you mentioned how dr doom was sort of used and kind of you were kept from using him because millar essentially wrote him out of the series or well trapped him in the zombie dimension mm-hmm. uh but like one of the other things that was taken that's a major uh fantastic four piece is Galactus, and while you did get to uh, reclaim Silver Surfer, would you have done something different with Galactus? Yeah, I definitely would. I mean, I, I definitely don't want to knock um, that storyline. I think the Galactus Horde was um, was quite effective in its own right, but I think Galactus as a character, um, I missed him. I did. I did miss him. I missed the the idea of the relationship between him and his heralds. Um, I would probably, if if if, I, if, I, if if Galactus had still been in play, um, I would definitely have used him and done something a bit closer to the um, the tr- traditional um, version of the character. And probably I would have used the Silver Surfer in that connection rather than in the the Psycho Man connection. Um, but but you know it's it, it's it's an incredibly rich environment, and I, I, I guess. You're not you're not necessarily thinking in the longest term. I mean, the the, the, the most the most forward planning I did was um, setting up the cosmic cube in that first God War story, and then paying it off about a year, eighteen months later. Um, I think you know the, 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 there are so many riches you kind of get drunk on it. You know, you're burning through years and years of plot lines in a single arc. Um, it's uh, it, it, it was a strange gig in that respect, but uh, it, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, yeah, it is. It is definitely one of those things where it's like you see a point where everybody's using all these toys that they have in the Ultimate Universe, and then it's like, oh well, we keep killing off these characters, or they're left in sort of unusable ways. Yeah, whereas one of the joys, one of the one of the uh, big joys of the the those that original run, uh, the Lee Kirby run, was the way uh, the way things build exponentially. Yeah, so um, the Fantastic Four um, meet the Sinister Century and they defeat it. Ronan the Accuser comes down to punish them for that, and you get inducted into all the craziness of the the Cree, the Cree and the Skrulls bit by bit over the space of years. It is a like fascinating thing to, like you said, watch how quickly a lot of it is used because it does feel like, oh, I don't know how long I'm going to have this, so I want to get to my favorite pieces. Yep. Yeah, there was definitely an element of that. And as it turned out, um, yeah, that was not a bad instinct because things did come to an end very, very, um, very abruptly 
after that. I guess, I mean, yeah, um, with it actually ending abruptly, did you have, like, a lot of forewarning that Ultimatum was coming to, like, allow you to at least to kind of get to, like, some sort of endpoint that you're hoping for? Yeah, Ralph told me that um, I, I had a limited amount of time, and he, he, he gave me enough of a heads up that um, it didn't come as, a, as an unpleasant shock. I guess Ultimatum itself, as a story, came as an unpleasant shock. But, um, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't sort of, um, it wasn't a problem for me as a writer. You know, I, knew, I knew where my endpoint was going to be and I was able to build up to it. Um, I guess if I'd known going in, if, I, if, if, if Ultimatum had been on the horizon when I, when, I, when I started, so I knew I only had a couple of years to work in, uh, I might have paced the God War, Cosmic Cube stuff, the Thanos story differently and made that be the big finale. Had more of a lead up to it. Because um, it would have been a more satisfying note to go out on than Salem Seven. I, mean, um, that, I, I think that's a it's a reasonable arc, but it's you know it's uh, it's not part of the bigger picture. If you look at what I did on um, on X Men, on Hellblazer, um, I, I tended to sort of approach those those things in the same way as I did Lucifer, which is to say, um, see the arcs as um, as episodes or ch- as chapters in a bigger, a bigger ongoing story, like all of my all of my Hellblazer run, which is about thirty seven, thirty eight issues, it's really just the one story. And yeah, you know, I, I think I could have done something like that with FF if I'd um, if I'd known that um, the fifty nine was the, was the cutoff point. I probably, probably would have would have approached that differently. But I'm not. But I'm absolutely not saying that I was um, that I was misinformed or underinformed because I wasn't. Um, if, if, if there's a bad, it was my bad. I think that's a reasonable uh, thing because yeah, you don't always get to in things with a full understanding of what's coming next, and I I don't think anybody really knew how Ultimatum was going to end because that was also really the last point that you had an ultimate Fantastic Four series until I believe the reboot. And even then that wasn't a real Mm. ultimate Fantastic Four. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're always kind of at the mercy of, um, of what the market is doing. You know, I've been on other books that have sort of ended more abruptly uh, with, with, with less, um, with less of a buffer uh, crossing midnight. Which is a series I did at uh, at DC Vertigo, which lasted for 19 issues. It was um, it was in trouble from the start. It never really found its audience, and then um, there was quite a precipitate uh, drop off. And we were we were warned, yeah, you're gonna basically gonna have to wrap this up in about three issues. So recently, you've been writing, or you've been working on the, well, not. M- uh, so you recently had the uh, Girl with All the Gifts movie uh, that came out that you had a hand in writing based on the book that you also wrote. Uh, one of our listeners uh, at Kerouac Smith wanted to know why you used the M.R. Carey pen name for that as opposed to... As opposed to Mike. That, 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 that was because... Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my 10th novel. Um, mm-hmm. It's fair to say that the previous nine had... Uh, enjoyed a, a sort of a relatively modest success uh the five of them were in the in the uh, felix caster series then there were two novels that i wrote under a pseudonym um as adam blake 
and then two more that I co-wrote with my wife um, and our daughter. Um, and none of them had sort of like done stellar business. They, 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 they'd done respectably, um, but they hadn't been what you might call blockbusters. Um, I, I sent in Girl With All The Gift in 2012 and my my publishers felt that it had more potential um, to be a mainstream success than the stuff I've been writing than the prose I've been writing up to them. So they said, we're going to give you a, um, a pen name, a pseudonym. And we're going to basically, we're not, we're not going to say this is a, a first novel by a new writer, but because it's going to be a different name, um, the big chain buyers, um, they've got nothing to compare it to. Then they're, they're not, they can't look at your last book and say, well, it's sold um, 8,000 or 18,000 or whatever. And therefore we're going to uh, order um, the same as we ordered them or maybe maybe 10% more or 10% less. If you, if you just make it be a freestanding thing uh, with a different name attached, they'll look at it on its own merits and they'll make the decision um, just on that. So I said, okay, fine. Um, what 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 kind of name? And they said, well, we'll just we'll we'll make it a transparent pseudonym, like Ian Banks, Ian M Banks. Um, so we'll keep the surname. Um, we'll just give you an initial. What's your middle initial? Um, my middle initial is J. I'm Michael James Carey. And the, uh, the the UK proofs came out as being by M J Carey. And then um, on the day that they were released, I got this panicked phone call from my editor. And Clark, who had just discovered that there was already an M.J. Carey, uh, and she writes bondage pornography. <laughs> she is she's very prolific, um, and I assume quite good at what she does. Um, so, so my my page on Goodreads uh, was linking directly to hers. So you'd go from Girl with All the Gifts to Danielle's Slaves, Danielle's Chains, Danielle's Whips, Danielle's Dungeons. Um, and the, the, unfortunately, the title "The Girl with All the Gifts" takes on a different set of connotations when you put it in Ooh. that um, in that company. So they quickly swapped out the J for an R, and uh, M. R. Carey was born. Oh. Uh, so Xavier Files, uh, who was at Xavier Files and runs the Xavier Files website, wants to know: Is it wild in a good way that Supernovas is one of the defining books? of Hickman's X-Men. Um, I think it's, I think it's great that, uh, that, uh, Jonathan is, is referencing supernovas. I'm, I'm really delighted to see, uh, the, the children of the vault come back into, uh, into continuity. I absolutely loved house of X and powers of X. I thought it was, uh, a, a crazy head trip, just, just wonderful, wonderful sci-fi with the X-Men characters at its heart um, and, and, a, and a beautiful sort of, sort of reinvention of their world. So um, I am, I, I could not be happier to be, to be a tiny part of that. Uh, what other books are you enjoying right now? Um, I'm, so I've just started reading uh, Nick Harkaway's uh, Gnomon which I'm finding really, really fascinating. And I just finished uh, Paul Tremblay's latest book, Survivor Song, which, um, which kind of rung me out. It's, it's a, a very small, very human story set against the backdrop of a zombie apocalypse. And it's basically a doctor trying to find a safe place to deliver um, the, the baby of one of her patients, it's, it's taking this pregnant woman across a, a sort of battle-scarred uh, landscape to try and find a place where she can give birth. 
Um, in terms of comics, uh, apart from um, the, uh, the the Hickman X verse titles, I'm not reading very much at the moment. Um, I I read uh, read and enjoyed um, the Tom King um, Mr. Miracle, but that's going back a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing nothing current that, that that springs to mind. I'm really out of the loop, I have to admit. I read a lot more prose these days than I do comics, which um, I think probably reflects the fact that I also write more prose than I do comics now. So out of curiosity, then, how did you stumble or get into the, uh, the Hickman X-Men run? Was it this is such a big thing that I want to get into it. I started or... to see the, uh, the buzz online and it sounded, it sounded fascinating. And then at Christmas I was in Brighton um, and I w- walked into Dave's comics in Brighton and picked up the hardcover and just got sucked in straight away. It just seemed like a, like a, a huge, huge epic story um, told in quite bold and different ways. You know, the fact that he has the, uh, the inset, prose pages the kind of uh, the pages that define um the major players and the major events as though in um in encyclopedia terms um you know there, there was there's a lot of stuff i hadn't seen before and I, I just wanted immediately to sort of devour that book which i did and i'm just uh, i'm just sort of catching up with the uh, the first of the monthlies now which is sort of spinning off from that in some fascinating directions Fair enough. It is. Uh, and some of the things that they've talked about more recently, especially looking at uh, like what it means to be reborn from a mm. queer perspective, for example, is uh, like getting in some other writers of who aren't just cis white males is going to be fascinating to see how that uh, turns out. And it's a, it's, it's um it's a wonderful kind of it, it, it's totally within um, the scope of the, the kind of the core metaphor of the X-Men, which is reaching your teens and, and discovering you're not the same as the people around you uh, and, how, and how, that, how, how you cope with that and where that where that uh, where that takes you. So it's 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 very much what the what the book was originally meant to be about, but it's reinventing it for the modern era in some glorious ways. I mean. Mm hmm. Uh, Andrew Young at Hocus Blocus wants to know, uh, there have been a lot of reinterpretations of the Fantastic Four over the years in both the comics and spin-off media, like films and cartoons. What would you say are the key elements making sure these reinterpretations still feel like the Fantastic Four? Um, I think in some ways that just comes down to the, the core characters, uh, the core characters and the relationships between them. Um, the friendship between Reed and Ben, uh, Reed's brilliance, Ben's indomitable courage, uh, the playfulness of Johnny Storm. Um, I, th- I think yeah, you 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 want to you want to get those characters right. I think also the idea of them as a family, even though they're not, you know, it, initially they're not a family; they're just friends. But the fact that they become a family and that their um, their identity as a family informs all of the, all of the stories and all that they do in the stories, and I think the cosmic scope the uh, you want to 
you want to rise to the challenge of the original series, which was incredibly inventive, incredibly innovative, and just just epic in the best sense. I I think that is true, and I mean, I, so many of the movies try and recontextualize and try to make the team make sense as an organization, but they never really feel like people. Enough. It's strange, isn't it? You would think that a a brilliant Fantastic Four movie would be an easy reach, and yet it hasn't happened. I'm curious to see what will happen now that um, it's gone back into. Am I right in saying that it's been reacquired now because of the the Fox Disney? Deal. So it's going to be. It's, there's a, a potential for the FF to be part of the MCU again. Oh, sorry, for part of the MCU for the first yeah. time. Yeah, uh, and I know there's been rumors about what they're trying to do. But I think it also might be one of those things where the studios would be hesitant to try because all of the movies have sort of not done well. Often. Or more recently, yeah. in major ways, I can see where they would be. Yeah, they would they would be cautious at first, but I really hope it will happen because I, I I would I would love to see that. It ought to exist. And then Andrew Young also asked the standard question: What character or team that you haven't written would you most like to? For an awful long time, I would I used to say my standard answer to that was Doctor Strange. Um, but then I did get to write a Doctor Strange story. It was a prose short story for a, a tiny anthology book that came out a few years ago. Um, I think characters I've never touched at all. I would love to take a crack at the Grant Morrison era Doom Patrol. Um, it's one of my favorite superhero books of all time. Um, I, I just love the, uh, the dynamic between those uh bizarre characters and the kind of um the way that they kind of like the ff the way that they took uh comfort from each other the way that they provided um a family for each other uh against the backdrop of of, of extreme and alienating events uh, i think it was a wonderful book and i think it was it, it was kind of um it was a poison chalice to pick up the book at the time immediately after grant morrison finished writing it because his you know the, the stamp he'd put on those characters was so extreme so marked you had two unenviable choices either carry on trying to be grant morrison in which case you know that job's already taken and you're only ever going to be a sort of like an imperfect um copy of him or do something radically different and be hated by the fans for being the writer who killed off that iteration of the group but i think now there's enough uh, there's enough distance that you could you could have a you could have a crack at it I think Gerard Way has mm -hmm. been doing a good job with his run because it matches that line of sort of Morrison-y inventiveness, but also coupled with a more modern sensibility right. in the desire to say that, oh, yeah, we know you love these things, but they can't stay this way forever. I, I, need, I very much need to check those out. I confess I've not read any of the Gerard Way Doom Patrol. That and the entire Young Animal line is one of those like great sets of books where everything feels different and they can come together and uh, do the Milk Wars crossover and then wrap up after one more volume and have told stories that all feel satisfying. So the fact that we're still getting additional Doom Patrol is great. That, that, 
that that again is a fascinating um, development. You know, the the the, the, the idea of a curated line of books like Young Animals or like um, Hill House Comics, where you have um, one creator taking um, taking an overview of the line and being responsible for commissioning the books in the line, writing some of it themselves, working closely with the other creative teams. I think that's a, a great, um, exciting approach to storytelling. I've loved being a part of Hill House. Well, uh, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to uh, um, talk about? I'm trying to think if there's anything else upcoming that I should plug. Um, if you're not reading Dollhouse Family, please read Dollhouse Family. Um, because it's the that's um, some of the best comics work I've done for a very very long time. It's me and Peter Gross and Vince Locke together again for the first time since I'm written, um, and we're having a blast with it. Nice. All right, and if people want to find you online, where can they find you? Only on Twitter. Uh, I'm nominally on Facebook, but I never actually post there anymore. Um, but I'm I'm on Twitter all the time, and um, I I. I generally respond to uh to friendly overtures there <laughs> yes you do uh, <laughs> well uh thank you for coming on and talking about your ultimate fantastic four run for our 200th numbered episode my pleasure and happy anniversary thank you very See much you. cheers guys cheers luke they've already left if that's all they were here for <laughs> well yeah now because i've inserted <laughs> this podcast in between all of those shenanigans the the podcast interview oh you're right yeah it's like 40 minutes later now i don't remember how long that is i have not actually updated it yet uh, it was about 40 minutes yeah it would be awful if it turned out that like one of our audio didn't pick up or something. I really hope that doesn't happen now oh my god i'm going to be paranoid about it good job luke uh, but yeah, so Devin, do you know what we're covering this week for our normal coverage? Some Ultimate Fantastic Four to tie into that interview we had with Mr. Carey. And the hate of Italian people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this week we are going to be covering Ultimate Fantastic Four, 39 through 46, which consists of two stories. And Devin? Yes, Luke? Thank you for going along with me on this journey so far. Yeah, it's been fun. Mm-hmm. So, our first story is Ultimate Fantastic Four 39 through 41. Devils, written by Mike Carey, with art by Scott Collins and Will Quintana, inks by Jamie Mendoza and Mark Brooks. Mendoza! With, with Soto Calor's A. Crossley... Also doing some assists and letters by VCs Randy Gentile and Russ Wu-Town. Yeah. Woo! And uh, so Sue wakes up Reed, who had been focusing on building the cube that Thanos planted into his mind before heading to meet with General Ross. And meanwhile, slash hundreds of years ago in 1483 in Milan, four wizards work to lock away Diablo, a.k.a. Mendez Flores. A wizard attempting to build a philosopher's stone wielding the four elements, but he forgot the most important element. Do you know what that is? Heart. A brother. Or limbs. 
That's also hard. Or I guess genocide. I kind of got confused on what happened in the latter part of uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Because I think they said that the Holocaust and World War II were being used to build an ultimate philosopher's stone. Oh, that's cool. I was just referencing Captain Planet. I don't watch your animes, Luke. The wizards end up losing one of their own in the process, but they secure Diablo, knowing that if he ever escaped, they'd be screwed because there's only three wizards. And that's only three of the four elements, which is not enough of those elements. Nope. Meanwhile, Ben goes to visit his mom for the first time since becoming the thing unaware that Diablo is watching him from the past and plans to use the four elements that make up the Fantastic Four to break free from the prison. And Ben is talking to his mom about how he feels like he isn't special enough because while he's strong, he keeps meeting people who are even stronger than him. And I like the moment that we have here because it's like, oh, yeah, Ben has been turned into a rock monster for probably two years at this point. Mm -hmm. Let Ben see his mom. Always gotta let him see the mom. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly Ben's mom, along with Johnny's current girlfriend, Donna, uh, Dr. Storm, who is Sue and Reed's father, and Enid Richards all vanish. <gasps> they end up in the past, 16 years after Diablo and his servant, Peppone, were locked inside the tower. Diablo forces Peppone to go into the fire to send a message to the future. Peppone it's pep one, has a Luke. fire. <laughs> Peppone <laughs> as a fiery apparition appears before the team as they meet back up at the Baxter building, realizing that they had stuff stolen from them except for Reed. And he tells them that Diablo plans to challenge them to a contest of skills by opening a portal to go back in time to 1499 or else they will lose their loved ones. And then Peppone dies. R.I.P. Pep One. <laughs> this is Pep One standing by, Gold Leader. I can't shake him. I can't shake him, Diablo. <laughs> Star Wars. Referenced. Mm-hmm. Reed then finds that he was not untouched by the theft and that his sister was stolen as well as a massive time arc appears outside of the buildings for them to enter and they decide to do it with Sergeant Lumpkin who brings along some troops and costumes from the costume shop. How quickly do you think that New York City uh, realtors were trying to sell space in that arch? Oh, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much would you love to pay to be in a tower that is near the Baxter building, home of the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is literally no space, but you can camp out on top of it for that real boho feel. We are looking for about $5,000 a month. It gets you into the heart of Midtown. You can't be this price. I was going to say, 5000 seems awfully low, Luke. <laughs> it comes with no utilities. There we go. Not approved by the zoning board, so keep it quiet. (laughs) Meanwhile, the three remaining wizards find that the Fantastic Four are coming back in time as the team arrives, and one of the wizards decides to attack instead of talking. Diablo, meanwhile, binds Enid and the others to release the energy for immortality once the time has come. The three wizards and local guards come, and the four and soldiers get into a fight, 
and create water simulacrums of the heroes. Oh, and the wizards. Yes. And the wizards create water simulacrums of the heroes. During the battle, the thing bursts through the walls, shouting, oh yeah, into the tower. He finds Diablo threatening Enid, who effortlessly shatters him into pieces, and then uses Enid to filter through the energy from the spell, announcing that it will destroy everyone in the future, which will give him the energy that he needs to become immortal. With the wizards halted, the team is able to talk to them. While in the present, the fire department tries to halt the energy unsuccessfully, the rest of the team arrives inside the tower and finds that Ben was killed and Diablo takes them out one by one before turning two of the three wizards completely to gold. I do love that the uh, fire department is like, oh, there's a bunch of energy coming through. We were told to be careful. Let's just spray it with yeah. water. Water solved all problems, Luke. Uh, that's why it's called water solved. Mm-hmm. Reed ends up surviving, getting in tune because he doesn't need to breathe, and Diablo tries to convince Reed to work with him, which Reed rejects. Diablo starts to poison Reed, gloating about the destruction he is sending through the portal into the present, so Reed blows it up, stopping the destruction in the present before Enid accidentally destroys him. The last wizard, who is partially turned to gold, Vichatio, tells them to reconstruct Ben, and he is restored by the elixir and is healed, but he is now blue. Vichatio, now a partial conduit of alchemy, because he got gold-plated, helps them to open the door and they return home to the present. Do you know what Vecchiato means? No, Luke. Old man. Which is funny because he was actually kind of young. Classic. Also, the way that he is explaining that, like, now he is super-powered is weird. It was. Because it's like, oh, it normally would have taken like 10 years for us to open this portal. But as I am now, it will take one hour. And it's like, I kind of thought you were going to be dying because you got gold plated. No, you see, Luke, gold is like extra magical. It's a conductor. Just like gold normally. So it can conduct magic energy just like it can conduct electricity (laughs) and heat. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pulling. That's it. how I took it. Vecchiato, he's the man, the man with the Milan touch, a spider's touch. Such a cold finger beckons you into his web of sin, Italian. Was that anything? That was not. Golden words he will pour in your ear, but his eyes can't disguise what you fear. For a golden girl knows when he's kissed her. It's the kiss death from Mr. Goldfinger. Pretty girl, beware of his heart of gold. This heart is cold. Vecchiato. Is that anything? Yes. That's all I wanted. But yeah, I, I like this story overall. It's It's got some weird bits to it, but it's a new take on Diablo. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a good story. And 
Uh, you get some of that cosmic alchemy. Uh, so it was great until the how do you feel? Uh huh. Like it knew what it was going to be. How do you feel about it compared to Ultimate Fantastic Four one through six, the Fantastic? Uh, better. Uh, how do you feel about it compared to Ultimate Fantastic Four Annual One or Annual Number Two? That was the one where they got sucked into the pit and Mole Man returned and we got his origin no. story that we talked about in we the did. interview or that other Luke and Devin talked. Wait, are we the Ultimate Ones? Or because normally the normal Luke and Devin don't cover these stories. Uh, yes. Oh, I'm looking at my watch. We apparently got fused together. By color? Mm-hmm. I got my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back yeah. ribs. Mama's baby back ribs. If you're confused, uh, you listen to our movie podcast where we tell you you should go see Color Out of Space. It's on our Patreon for free. With some classic Nick Cage action. Crazy uh-huh. directs crazy. Did you know that Richard Stanley put a voodoo curse on the new director of Island of Dr. Moreau, Luke? No, but I wouldn't be surprised. Did you watch that documentary? I did not. It's just something that yes. you know? All right. Uh, well, how do you feel about this compared to the Ultimate Fantastic Four? Uh, underground. Oh, that's a annual. tough one. Like, I think they both did very similarly strong yeah. things. And like new takes on ideas. But I, I think I like that one more than this. Like the art was definitely, I think, a better because that was Eminem and... Uh, Stuart always does a good job. Yeah. So, uh, do you think it's better than Ultimate Spider-Man Cats and Kings? No. I think it is better than Ultimate's annual number one, The Reserves. So our new number 14 is Ultimate Fantastic Four 39 through 41 devils all right and then we have ultimate fantastic four 42 through 46 silver surfer once again written by mike carey with art by pasquale fairy colors by justin ponsor and letters by vc's russ wooton the richards and donna uh, the Richards, along with donna's family are upset that they can't see their loved ones because of a mandatory quarantine due to time travel because nobody wants to get bubonic plague. It's much True less horny than it sounds. Reed's dad is pissed, blaming Reed for everything that went wrong. And Sue tries to comfort Reed, but Reed really only wants to get comfort from solving the cube. And he's trying to figure out, because it uses way too much energy to convert mass, which is not what it was designed to do. Meanwhile, Ben's mom is flirting with Sergeant Lumpkin, who is into it. Ben is back to his normal orange rock color. And Johnny and Donna are making out, but 
Donna wants more out of the relationship and Johnny is a complete asshole and brushes her off and is like, hey, you're here for my needs, Donna. Which... Johnny, what a dick. Yeah, like I think that's more dickish than we normally get from Johnny. Mm-hmm. Johnny, do bad. Uh, fun fact, Devin, do you know what Chuck Berry's only number one chart-topping Billboard 100 song was? No, Luke, tell me. It is not Johnny Be Good. It is not Run Run Rudolph. It is My Ding-A-Ling. A cover that he did. Nice. Which is also kind of sad. A little bit, yeah. Chuck, it's your cousin, Marvin. Marvin Berry. You know that song that you're looking to because the 70s are going through a 50s revival? Well, listen to this. Your ding-a-ling, my ding-a-ling, the one is my ding-a-ling-a-ling. Uh, Chuck Berry aside, uh, Reed connects his device to pull energy from a star and it connects unexpectedly with something else. Reed realizes that he has bent space and brought forth something new, which telescopes around the world are picking up as something massive gets closer to the Earth, causing worldwide disasters. <gasps> The Baxter building is hit by the storm that its presence causes, and Reed tries to cut the connection and soon finds a large metallic surfboard-like object that he brought forward that is filled with energy. Reed finds out that he pulled the Silver Surfer from a high reality, and the Surfer is rapidly compressing and shrinking as it is destroying the solar system as it heads towards Earth and Manhattan. Like, they take a big chunk out of the planet. NBD. And, uh, yep, so Reed and the team get into their new fantastic car, the 710 Split, and head out to halt the surfer as he's falling to Earth, and Sue and Johnny are unable to do anything. And so thinking quickly, Ben gets launched at the Silver Surfer, which knocks him out, and he falls into the water. Fury calls in and orders him to meet with Captain Carol Danvers, who orders the team to turn the surfer over. Carol's rightfully pissed, but Reed wants to research what's going on and sends subs to retrieve it, and they pull him up and work to secure him. The surfer breaks out of the Hulk uh, resistant restraints, learns English, and introduces himself as Norn Rad of Zen La. I love how quickly everyone's able to just be like, oh, I listened to two sentences of you talking. I know English now. Bam. Because Namor did pretty much the same thing. Basically, it's probably the Mike Carey trying to say that English is a simple language for babies. I mean, it is. It is. He then plans to build a beacon to summon his master and cause necessary death. Carol Danvers and the team try to stop him, and they are all defeated except for Ben, who is good at punching, until even he is toppled. The surfer talks about wanting to bring them peace and enters the Baxter building to start building, and Reed realizes Enid was left in the building. The surfer calls his master, Revka, Timberlurn, Edifix Skyros III, when Enid appears and he controls her to love him and tell him about the Earth. The Fantastic Four find the Revka walking with Enid in the streets, and Reed recognizes that the people are under control to worship Revka. Revka notices the Fantastic Four are different, and Reed punches him to get him to stop, but instead of getting angry, Revka ends up taking the entire city with him to see the paradise of Zen La. On Zen Law, the team has been brainwashed, so Reed is now Dan and Mikkel. 
or sorry, is now Reed is now Denim Ket, who is no longer a genius. Sue is Ivry Sansu, who is out of Reed's, Reed's league. Ben is the stone man who likes stones, and Johnny is Tef. The Silver Searcher is memorialized for his sacrifice, and there's strange dreamlike memories from Earth. At the dance, Reed and Sue get to spend some time together when Norrin Rad appears. He has Reed get on the board because he knows Reed still searches for truth over happiness and helps Reed remember his powers and begin to remember things. Norrin explains that Revka was made the leader for life of Zen Law and uses telepathy and psycho machines to increase his powers to make everyone happy, but he was still unhappy, which might have driven him insane. He started making a successor who wasn't affected the same way by his powers, and that boy was Norrin Rad, who saw it as a curse and who tried to free the people only to see them descend into chaos, and so Revka and Norrin were both made immortal, and Norrin was sent to find a new race to populate Zen La with the memories of the dead Zen La. Revka, meanwhile, is treating Enid like his daughter when he finds that Reed has woken up, so he sends three other metallic figures after him. Reed, meanwhile, gathered the group with Sue and Johnny regaining their memories, but Ben has yet to get his back. They meet up with Norrin and plan to shut down the machines to take power away from the so-called psychoman Revka, and they track where they believe his signal is coming from, only to find out that it was a trap as the metal figures come in and fight them and the other members of the team are endangered. But that is when Ben sort of recovers his memories and is able to work with Reed to knock out the other metal men. They head to Revka's base, but he is waiting for them there and holds off their powers. And Norrin argues that they may be happy, but they're happy slaves. And Revka sees nothing wrong with him staying peaceful and happy forever. So Reed decides that, you know, maybe we need a child to decide what they would prefer. And so he has Enid get freed and pick the life that she would prefer. The paradise that Revka offers or the truth of Earth. Enid freed immediately runs to her brother and asks to go home to Earth. And Revka gets angry, so he decides to connect Reed to his circuit that he used to control everyone. Uh, that was secretly part of Revka, which is why they couldn't turn that off. And Reed struggles to control everything until the rest of the team joins him in, like at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 1. Mm-hmm. And they are able to do a friendship psychic blast to hit Revka, and they return everyone home. Norn decides to go back to searching in space. Reed removed everybody's memories of Zinla, and Revka was reduced to pretty much being a happy childlike uh, creature attended by his three other metal sons. It's it's interesting, especially, are you caught up on Good Place? Nope. Are you, like, seasons behind on Good Place? Yes. Oh, okay. They've been dealing with a lot of similar issues. Neat. But yeah, I I think this is a really interesting way of doing the Psycho Man. Yeah, this was a really good one. And like I know Mike Carey in the interview talked about how he was really proud of the weird like mind wiped issue. And mm-hmm. I think that he like earned it. There was some stuff that I would have liked a bit more development on. But yeah, making an entire planet where people are possessed by ghosts of the dead is fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four, numbers 42 through 46, Silver Surfer. Let us rank it on our list. This is going to be our 100th story ranked on the list. 
which unless we think it's worse than Ultimate Iron Man, the first part <laughs> uh, is uh, going to be... Don't laugh at our pain, Luke. I don't think this is worse than <laughs> Ultimate Iron Man, the first part. Um, yeah, how do you feel about this compared to the uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four annual that we talked about before? I like it more. I liked it more, too. Uh, we then have, above that, popular Gods and Monsters and Ultimate Electra and or Ultimate Daredevil and Electra. Do we think it's better than all of those? Uh, yeah. Uh, we then have a block of Ultimates, Spider-Man, Double Trouble, Learning Curve, Legacy, Sidetracked, Public Scrutiny. I, I feel like this is probably better than Learning Curve, which mm-hmm. was the second Ultimate Spider-Man. Yes. But I don't know if I can put it above Legacy. I would agree. So our new number seven is Ultimate Fantastic Four 42 through 46 Silver Surfer, which uh, there is a wide, wide gap between our highest Mike Carey story and our lowest Mike Carey story. Nice. Mm hmm. That is the power of things. Yeah, because Think Tank is down at number 79. Though I do think we, yeah, we still have some ultimate Marvel team ups that are down lower because Bendis has our number one spot. Yes. But yeah. So, 200 episodes, Devin. 200 numbered episodes, Devin. 200. Dang, yo. Mm hmm, mm hmm. So, uh, yeah. I didn't really ask her any questions, slash I didn't get any questions for this one. We got most of them for the interview section. I was going to say, that's that's fine. Yeah. Uh, So, I guess, do you know what we're covering next time, Devin? Spider-Man? I am checking because I don't remember either. Uh, No. X-Men? Well... Also, no, uh, we're going to have something for Birds of Prey coming out. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the movie where some idiot was like, oh, I don't think that Mary Elizabeth Winestead looks hot enough as Huntress. That's a stupid comment. Yeah. People who don't want to die and who want horniness to not remind them of death are dumb. Yeah, we're going to do something for Birds of Prey that we will need to figure out. And then we're covering... I wish I had that Kanye uh, clip ready. Because we're covering Ultimate Power. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. So, look forward to that. As I will need to make sure that we get those recorded ahead of time. Because that's also anniversary weekend for me on our next episode. So, good times, Devin. Good times. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Well, Devin, if people want to ask about your love life, 
Where can they do that? Uh, you can find me online at Fred of Fett. That's F R E D D O F E T T. And Luke, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Coltreg. That's K O L T R E G. I am also currently doing the RPG Pals Club podcast at RPG Pals Club. And that and this are the only active podcasts that we have. Uh, you can find uh, this show on Twitter at, at MultiversalQ. We also have a Facebook that we update sometimes. And uh, yeah. Jeez, I'm 313 numbered episodes is a lot. Verily. And then, I mean, you know we have coming up in March, Devin. No. Our fifth year anniversary. Oh, then sure. Yeah, five years of doing this show. Nice. So we'll need to figure out something special to do for that. If you have ideas that you would like to see us do, let us know on our Twitter. And, uh, yeah, we'll be A traditional five-year anniversary gift is wood. <laughs> Wordplay. Uh, another tr- good traditional five-year gift, even though it would disturb our number of $69 a month on the Patreon, would be backing the Patreon where we've been putting up, or well, I've been putting up some additional content. We're going to have a new movie versal queue where we talk about some movies that uh, we've both seen. Uh, there was a Pokemon RPG one shot that I did, and there should be some other stuff coming up soon. So, trying to keep that alive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, numbered 200 in the bag, Devin. Swish. Swoosh. Go back, goes whoosh. Uh, we'll catch you all in two weeks. On the flip mode. Peace. Peace.